Remember you used to request the Dhamma talks? Oh, do you want me to do that? You did it so well. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, some of you may remember last year and the year before we did the um, requesting a Dhamma teaching on page 25. So if you remember it, feel free to sing along with me. Tasa Bhagavato Arahadoa Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahadoa Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahadoa Sama Sambutasa Buddhang Damang Sanghang Namasami This evening I'd like to talk a bit about the unreliability of perceptions and how perceptions create a world that we live in. And a good part of developing meditation, developing Dhamma practice is working within the realm of perceptions to create perceptions which are, are gradually more and more in line with how things are in the Dhamma, gradually in line with the truth. All right. So, um, the average person, uh, generally, uh, we trust our perceptions. You know, we, we, we think we can tell you know, the difference between um, what is going to be leading to happiness and what is going to be leading to suffering. And yet, we've got billions of people in the world all proclaiming uh, they want to be happy, and yet there's so much suffering in the world. So, uh, there's something uh, ineffective <laughs> in their perceptions. Uh, they're not able to, uh, or I say we, as a, as a species, uh, have a limited ability to perceive what will actually lead us uh, to being happy, well, balanced, satisfied, content, and peaceful people. Uh, so it's interesting to look, well, why is that? Uh, why doesn't it just come naturally? Uh, so it's, yeah, it's not always clear, you know, what, what comma what causes and conditions are, are going to be conducive to um, feeling uh, heavenly you know, in this life, uh, uh, to say nothing of higher stages of insight and understanding. And uh, uh, quite often, uh, it's not uh, the external conditions so much as our perceptions which will determine whether we're feeling like we're in heaven or we're feeling like we're in hell. Uh, you can take uh, two people sitting next to each other on a meditation retreat, both experiencing uh, nearly exactly the same external conditions. One can be um, pretty much in heaven in terms of mental state, and the other can uh, definitely 
be in the lower realms of uh, pain, frustration, anger, um, uh, both mental, both mental and physical pain. Uh, so uh, often it uh, it uh, often it does have to do with results of karma, and we work through karma on uh, in different rates. But it also has to do with perceptions and how we perceive things is the karma which is going to be literally creating our future as we go along. In Pali, the word for perception is sanya. S-A-N-N-A, with circumflex over the N's. And generally in Pali, this refers to a very basic type of perception, um, uh, close uh, to the sense doors. For example, uh, recognizing color, being able to, uh, to recognize, you know, if you look in a green field, you know, and being able to recognize uh, uh, the greenness of it, um, looking at the color, you know, looking at a certain color, and then calling that pink. But again, perceptions are, are very much learned. Um, they're, they're not um, embedded in the external world. So what I call pink may be different than what you call pink. And then it, it, again, it's another jump of perception to be able to label something as field, you know, green field, or a, a human being, or you know, along the railroad tracks. And saying, you know, this is, a, this is a, a cold steel railroad track. And perceptions play a major role in our interactions with other people, right? how we perceive people. Um, what we project onto them. You know, someone might be smiling at us, and if we're in a good mood, we may think, oh, how wonderful, how loving they are. And then another day, we, if they're smiling at us, we may think, oh, what a false, phony front they're putting on. <laughs> yeah. and, and it may have less to do with them than it does with us. So a lot of, of developing meditation, for example, let's say loving-kindness meditation, is, has less to do with the other people out there than it does with our perceptions of the so-called other people out there. So we start to perceive people uh, uh, different in our own mind. That's how you know you can take you can take a, say a visualization of um, someone who you may not particularly like, you may find irritating, um, whatever, and you can visualize them smiling. You can visualize the pain that they might be going through. Right? That would make them irritating. You can visualize them uh, and just and just uh, just give them a sense of kindness and compassion, whether whether you think they deserve it or not. Yeah? It doesn't mean you. You know the thing with metta is that even if we don't really like someone, they're still deserving of a sense of respect, uh, appreciation, kindness. Uh, in human care, and so this is a 
you know, a deeper way of, of perceiving people. And changing that perception in our own mind is interesting. Often when we meet that person again, they may have not changed noticeably at all, but we've been perceiving them smiling or you know, perceiving them differently. And when we meet them again, it's like meeting a different person. And uh, it automatically has a, a shift in the, in the relationship. Um, uh, it's also true with developing uh, perceptions around the, the human body. Uh, for example, you know, there's a whole range of uh, practices in the first foundation of mindfulness, about mindfulness of the body, uh, that have to do with um, breaking down or, or creating more accurate perceptions of the human body. So whether we're, whether we're say, focusing on uh, just the surface of the body, then we have meditations which will um, tend to balance it out by, by creating perceptions of, of the whole human body, you know, inside and out. Um, if we're focused more on, uh, uh, let's say, the, uh, the youth or the um, kind of the fixed nature of the human body, and then there are perceptions um, that can be developed in meditation which will focus on what happens to the human body after it uh, passes away. And you know, just kind of seeing, seeing things in, pers- in a more realistic spectrum. You know, so we're not just focusing on one little part of reality but um, you know, that's way out of balance. But we intentionally try to balance it out by looking at these other parts and we develop perceptions which are more and more in line with reality. Um, on that, uh, I mean, even just doing mindfulness of breathing, you know, the final steps of mindfulness of breathing have to do with uh, perceiving the impermanence in the breath, right? Or, or just, um, um, you know, when we really start to um, develop insight uh, directly and focus on that specifically, uh, perceiving the the specific qualities of changeability, of things ending, uh, of things passing away, of uh, things basically being out of our personal control, and the sort of instability or the unreliability of conditioned phenomena. Right? We we focus on that. And we actually develop these perceptions, and we we develop perceptions for the purposes of letting go, right? So, um, if perceptions are conducive to attachment, clinging, uh, causing other people suffering, causing ourselves suffering, then those are perceptions which are, are not going to be useful, right? Uh, so it's good to kind of kind of look, you know, do we have perceptions that are actually harming other people or harming ourselves? And then, uh, are there shifts in perceptions that would be maybe not only more realistic, but create a, a greater sense of happiness for ourselves and, and uh, be much kinder to other people? So how is it that we can... Uh, develop perceptions which are, are more in line with the way things are. It's not a matter of just trying to convince ourselves. 
You know, you read in a Buddhist book, oh, everything's impermanent, so we try to convince ourselves everything impermanent, so we can force ourselves to let go of attachment, and it just it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, yes, there is a, a role that thought can play, uh, and, and that is a helpful role, but it only goes so deep. And for, for perceptions to really shift in a, uh, in a, in a stronger or, or deeper direction, in a deeper way, in, a, in a, a direction towards wisdom, then it entails basically you know, what we practice all the time. Uh, certainly one is sila. Uh, don't en- underestimate the power of sila or you know, just keeping precepts on a regular basis because a lot of, a lot of um, obstacles that might otherwise arise uh, to block wisdom, to block peace of mind, um, if we don't keep precepts, you know, we're not going to run into those if we just keep precepts. So uh, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, it's it's very basic practice, but it is something that we can all do, we can all work with. And um, and that in itself will start to uh, purify consciousness, because what we say, what we do, originates in our consciousness. So if we're mindful and, and careful with body and speech, then that also has a correspondingly uh, purifying effect on the mind. So now if we take it further and start developing uh, the beginning stages of meditation, for example, um, you know, mind starts to go uh, a bit more peaceful, body becomes more relaxed, then uh, we're able to maybe see some of the spaces between thoughts. You actually start to see thoughts arising and passing away and start to get a sense that, well, just because of thoughts in my mind, that doesn't mean that's who I am. Right? And that, that's already a very important step. Um, if uh, samadhi or concentration um, becomes uh, a bit deeper, uh, then it's what we call um, upajara samadhi. Now, upajara is actually a commentarial term. It's not, um, it's not a term that the Buddha used, uh, but still it's a useful term in the sense that it designates uh, a level of samadhi where the five hindrances are completely absent from the mind and yet one is still um, cognizant. You, know, you can still see, you can still hear, uh, uh, you still feel things in your body, you can still function mentally, you can still think, etc. Now in very deep states of meditation, uh, called jhana or apana samadhi, then it's not possible uh, to, to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think, but there's very clear, bright, uh, super radiant mindfulness. And there's other mental qualities uh, such as um, uh, rapture, happiness, etc., that will be coming into that state. But it's not possible to, to function or investigate the senses. Now, the, now the power that comes from, from that level of samadhi is extremely useful. And, um, uh, you know, it's really worth developing if one has um, some potential in that direction. However, the place where insight is really going to happen, the place where uh, perceptions and views are going to be purified, is on the level of upajara samadhi. So now the five hindrances, um, sensual desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt, 
they, there are obvious forms of the hindrances and there are very subtle forms of them. So uh, it's, good, it's a good barometer of our meditation just to kind of check to see how active and strong the hindrances are. Um, you know, there may be, it may be very obvious, painful memory comes up and a sense of reactive anger is there. Um, or fantasies, but also maybe very subtle. Um, it may be so subtle that we're just falling asleep. No, it may be so subtle there might be some, just a little bit of restlessness that of the mind just not settling down. Right? And this is, uh, this uh, is getting closer and closer you know, to, to uh, Upajara Samadhi. Um, but real Upajara Samadhi, the mind is very, very stable. It's, uh, it's like the little uh, bay or lagoon out by Buddha Point right now. When there's no wind, uh, the mind is just like this uh, placid bay of water. And it just accurately reflects uh, the trees, the sky, and it's got depth to it. And uh, it's one of these similes that Ajahn Chah used. Uh, and you know all sorts of interesting things then come out of the forest uh, to uh, to partake of this and um, and you can be aware of this it's like watching the mind it's it's super still and deep and cool and peaceful like like that little lagoon is and uh, and you can see how it's just reflecting everything so accurately and at the same time you're you're not you know, you can still see, you can still hear, you can still sense what's going on. Uh, but the mind's not moving. And the mind's not being uh, ruffled by a wind, for example. And you can see the deer coming out of the forest and coming down to drink, and you see other animals coming. And um, in that bay, we also get interesting human visitors coming as well. Um, the uh, uh, besides the deer, we tend to get uh, neighbors coming. They've heard there's this um, kind of exotic animal uh, living in a tent over there. So they come. Uh, they come. They've heard. We've. You know, they're kind of very cautious, and they kind of because <laughs> you know they're. We've heard there's a monk over here. We want to. You know, we want to. They're like. You're going. They put their motor down on low, <laughs> and uh, and kind of, you know, the conversation dies down a bit, and you can hear them whispering and say, "Oh, there he is! <laughs> look, look, look!" <laughs> there was so I mean, object of curiosity in the lake. Actually, the neighbors on the lake. Uh, are, are quite supportive. Um, we've met most of them, and a lot of them have been here, and uh, so they they know about us. Um, so it's but they are kind of interested. What's going on over there? But you know they think it's they they generally are supportive. Um, they have a term from uh, for us, <laughs> uh, which came from uh, um, one day. One of the, I guess it was a Reber's grandson. Yeah, Reber's grandson is four years old last year. Wandered over, he was lost, he was looking for his dad. He wandered over from way over here, somewhere over here, which is a long ways for a four-year-old to go alone. And 
was kind of lost and ran into one of the people here for, on the retreat or preparing for the retreat. And uh, he says, are you my dad? I'm looking for my father or something like that. And so we, we took him in and brought him back. And then they, they asked him, uh, you know, over there, they, they asked him, you know, about his story, what happened. He said, well, I came over here and, and uh, um, I met the Budapests. <laughs> so, so, we're, so we're now affectionately known as the Budapest <laughs> on the lake. <laughs> okay, all right. But back to Samadhi. Back to Samadhi and the, and the still lake of Upajara Samadhi. Uh, and um, that is where the mind has uh, stability and peace and depth and wisdom and clarity. And at the same time, our eyes are open, our ears are open, our senses are open, and we can, we can actively investigate the nature of reality without the mind kind of being pulled off, you know, pulled off topic. So we can just really focus in on, on one aspect and just keep, you know, hammering away at it, so to speak. Uh, but without that level of samadhi, without that stability and that strength of mind, then often what happens is, yeah, we want to pick up a topic of investigation, we want to you know, really look into anatta, what's this all about, uh, but it's like the mind just kind of keeps slipping, slipping away. You, know, you try to keep it on, on, the, on the investigation of some cars, mental formations, or whatever, and then it, it just kind of slips away or it kind of skims the surface a bit. It doesn't, doesn't kind of sink in and, and go in deeply. So that's the, the benefit of, of samadhi, or really how insight starts to go very deep at, at that level of practice. And when we, again, we're talking about perceptions. Um, you know, as we develop, as we develop uh, samadhi and, and insight together, really they go together, uh, then perceptions will become more and more in line with the way things are. And even, even just with samadhi practice, to say nothing of insight practice, uh, it, one of the benefits of it is that uh, we start to see things as they truly are. Um, because... Uh, you know, if our minds are clouded, scattered, um, dealing with issues, worries, angst, anxiety, then it's difficult to even see what's clearly in front of us. It's difficult to get any clarity around, you know, the issues in our life. So samadhi just helps us to see everything clearly, and then correspondingly our perceptions become more accurate, and wisdom starts to kick in and develop, which leads to more letting go, which leads to more peace, etc. And then we start a you know, positive spiral up. So now, perceptions and our thoughts and our views are very much intertwined. Uh, they all kind of rotate around each other and reinforce each other. So uh, how we perceive things will tend to give rise to thoughts, which will reinforce our views of the world, our views of other people, our views of ourselves. Uh, the way things work, and then once we have those basic underlying views, that gives rise to more perceptions about how the way things are, and then we trust our perceptions, which gives rise to more thoughts, and the whole thing just keeps uh, reinforcing itself, and we 
create this hologram uh, of, of thoughts, views, and perceptions. So the really, you know, you, you can't just go in there and start, it just doesn't work to try to, try to fix it at that level. It's like you have to, you have to go to a deeper level uh, to really uh, start to shift that whole dynamic. And that's where samadhi comes in. Um, samadhi starts that process. But, uh, of course, even in developing samadhi, really, you know, uh, you, you're always developing insight as well. Um, the, even basic things like, okay, if you're, if you're sitting down to meditate and, and you start to recognize that thoughts are not continuous, they actually arise and passing away, okay, well, that's a beginning of, of seeing an uh, in, in insight. It's a beginning of insight, and that will help to deepen samadhi. Uh, so they go together the whole way. But then, when at later stages, where insight really kicks in and takes the forefront of the practice, and you really delve into uh, certain topics um, with gusto and just go for it with insight, um, that's what uh, really has the purification a- uh, aspect uh, for perception. So that's when um, that's when perception has the opportunity to really become purified, and and it's only at the level of um, the first level of enlightenment, stream entry, where perceptions are perceptions and views views are considered purified. Now, at the first level of enlightenment, uh, it doesn't obviously it's it's only the first level. It's not it's not the final enlightenment, but the view or Understanding of of you know ourselves, our reality, the five khandas is clear enough that it's very it's very obvious what needs to be done, and then it's just a matter of time in carrying it out. Yeah, but the process still takes a bit of time because you know it's just like okay, we we know what needs to be done, you know, to to clean up the mess. But there's still a lot of mess there, so it'll just take a bit, you know, a bit more effort. But we can see that if we if we keep doing this, eventually it's it, it's going to be clean. Uh, so that's basically um, how we gradually come from a place of uh, deluded perceptions, where we can't really trust our perceptions, to a place where we can trust our perceptions, uh, and that's. That's one reason why it's it's helpful to have a teacher because uh, it's it is it's just by its very nature it's difficult for us to to trust our perceptions about you know what's helpful for us what leads to happiness um, what we really need in life sometimes we can be accurate sometimes we can be the best you know judge or our, our own best teacher um, sometimes we do the exact wrong thing you know the exact thing that we don't need is what we end up doing. Uh, just because our perceptions are influenced by delusion. Um, just a side note on that: um, the level of well, the first level of enlightenment. Um, my experience over the years in in understanding in you know meeting with um, you know real true blue dinky die enlightened masters is that even the first level of enlightenment is actually quite an exalted. Uh, state. It's not beyond the reach uh, of anybody, uh, but it's not a small thing. And 
um, some of the accounts of teachers that I've stayed with uh, in, in, in private uh, when they've talked about it with other monks. Um, just as an example, you know, they'll talk about how... Um, okay, I mean, one example is <clears throat> a teacher that I know, just to give you an idea of, of uh, his natural potential, uh, within the first couple of times of meditating, he was able to go into jhana, yeah, a deep, very, very deep state of meditation. And still, even with that amount of natural ability and dedication, he really put a lot of effort into practice. Still, it took him many, many uh, years of hard practice um, before actually attaining um, stream entry, or sotapanna. Uh, but generally, uh, the forest tradition, the forest ajans, will stay clear uh, of those types of uh, labels and terminology. It's not that they aren't uh, actual you know, major shifts you know, in consciousness. They are. But it's so easy, to, um, so easy to get hung up on the term rather than the actual practice, what's actually happening. Uh, so uh, in the end, they find it more useful just to come back to, well, what are you actually experiencing? without trying to put a label on it. Ajahn Chah, in particular, uh, would uh, really steer clear of using terms like that, even for himself. Uh, some of the other teachers might speak a little bit more openly in private, just amongst the um, monks, uh, but uh, definitely not in public. But even in private, Ajahn Chah wouldn't, as far as I know, he, you know, he just really wouldn't uh, uh, get caught in, into that either about himself or with other people, um, because the, you know, the mind, the ego, the self is so tricky, subtle. You know, the kind of the the ultimate aspiration of a self is to be an enlightened self, which of course is deluded. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be the ultimate coup. You know, if a self could actually be enlightened and still be there. So that's a bit about uh, perceptions. So when it comes to being able to tell happiness from suffering, tell uh, one thing from another, it's good just to sometimes take things with a grain of salt. It's very easy, it's natural, that we trust our perceptions. Otherwise, well, you know, if we, why would we perceive something if it wasn't true? Right? But uh, at least if we have in the back of our mind, well, all of us, you know, our perceptions are inaccurate to a certain degree. And other people's perceptions might be more accurate than ours. So that helps to be more spacious, more forgiving, more understanding with other people, less strident in our own views and perceptions. And just more realistic.
on more of a, a lifestyle contemplation. You know, you, people go through so many phases in life, and uh, notice a lot of many people. You know, certain uh, phases are you know really dedicated, and then um, at other phases uh, seem to sell out a bit. You know, I remember reading a person once and uh, they had they apparently this was up in Nevada City it was actually you know years ago you know this woman said I was just a young monk at the time but uh, you know a woman said you know when when my husband and I were young we were you know, we were real kind of good hippies. <laughs> and seeing you just kind of reminds me that I think we kind of sold out. <laughs> and it, it's easy, it's easy for that to happen. You know, it, it can be uh, a challenge sometimes just to uh, keep up our, our aspirations, you know, maintain our aspirations, the you know the nobility of certain aspirations uh, you know, can get lost just in the, all the details of daily life. But it's good uh, uh, if you can, you know, to be aware of that. I mean, what happens? You know, we end up just start to um, trading, you know, trading things which are really valuable uh, for things which are not so valuable. Uh, I'm, you know, like uh, heroes. A lot of my heroes are dead now. You know, a lot of my uh, uh, the teachers that I knew and looked up to and, and lived with and, and heard teachings from, you know, have passed away. And uh, you know, in a similar way, uh, um, uh, certain aspirations for practicing the Dhamma, you know, it can or, or certain. Uh, um, Aspirations, you know, can end up being more like ghosts. You know, they uh, they become dead to us. They're still kind of floating around, but but not in a solid fo- form anymore. You know, there, sometimes I ask myself if I, you know, if I given up uh, the coolness of the forest, you know, for the the heat of, of daily life, you know, giving up the 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 coolness of the Dhamma, you know, for a lot of hot air, and uh, it's good just to reflect it as as people age. Often that that happens. Often as we we get into different phases of life, it can happen that uh, we start to trade uh, very important aspects of ourselves for maybe more socially acceptable aspects uh, that we can take on, or um, easy things, things which are convenient. Uh, Sometimes it's just, you know, material comfort, you know, the the whole level of material comfort, taking the easy road. I mean, it just just can be the path of least resistance sometimes, and yet it can have a real deadening effect. Uh, And it's not just physically. You know, because uh, often we can see through that. But if we get into mental places where 
it, it's, uh, you know, we get into a place where it feels comfortable, but that, that, that comfort can be the very thing which can stop us from further growth. So the, the nature of that kind of convenience, whether it's physical convenience or, or mental convenience, it's convenient to perceive things in a certain way, uh, then there's a seductive nature to that, which, you know, it's like, well, are we content with this level of peace yet? Uh, because if we do a certain amount of, of work in meditation, we can work through the rough stuff, and then, and then it feels like things are, things are balanced enough, you know, things are okay, things are not so bad as they were. And then, uh, uh, if it becomes good enough, then a sense of complacency can set in. Now, there's a difference between being content and being complacent. So being content with what we have is always a good thing, but um, the, the spiritual side of that, or the drawback of that, is that um, if we become uh, complacent with without making further growth, complacent mentally, then uh, it can it can just kind of halt our growth and become um, stuck, uh, kind of in a, in a bit of a whirlpool. This, um, this tendency was there right from the very beginning you know, when the Buddha was had taught for many years, uh, had built up uh, huge monasteries, even within his lifetime, materially, it would become a major organization. It was huge. And there's one sutta, the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha is encouraging the monks not to be his heirs in all the material things, like <coughs> inheriting this big organization, but to be his heirs in the Dhamma. Um, that's what's really important. And uh, he even brought up a, an interesting simile, where uh, if he had leftover, he said, well, imagine if I had leftover food in my bowl, uh, you know, if he had eaten enough and there was still some alms food left, and another monk came along and, and hadn't eaten yet, and the Buddha said, well, would you like uh, my leftover food? And uh, the other monk would uh, say, yes, thank you very much, and would eat it uh, with gratitude. And, and then another monk came along, similar situation, and the Buddha had some leftover food, and... He said, "Would you like to? Would you like my leftover food?" And, and the monk said, um, "You know, with respect, said, uh, no, I, I'm I'm going to pass on food today. I'm I'm going to uh, fast, and then go fast so that I can intensify my practice, you know, practice even more meditation." And of those two people, the Buddha said the second one would be more praiseworthy in his eyes, in the sense that even though the, the one who accepted the food had, was certainly within his right. Uh, but uh, you know, kind of accepting that material um, hand down from the Buddha 
was not as good as someone who who decided no, actually even that much. I mean that's a huge renunciation. <laughs> I mean if the Buddha gave me food, you know, I would probably take it. <laughs> I'd be pretty honored. But to even renounce you know, the Buddha's gift of of food and uh, just for the for the with the intention of practicing it even more intently then uh, the Buddha praised that highly. So the Buddha was always aware of this tendency to mm, to kind of get settled into either a physical, material complacency or uh, a mental uh, place of, of spiritual complacency. know uh, when many of the, the monks of my generation or many monks that I've known when when we're young or when people first come to the Dhamma there can be a real enthusiasm for practice and uh, you, you really go for it and uh, generally that's a good thing it's a good thing to put a lot of, a lot of uh, effort into practice uh, could be a lot of devotion, um, and I mean sometimes it's not totally in balance, but that's okay. It gradually comes in balance. Uh, and interestingly enough, you know, when you really start to to put your heart into Dhamma practice, although Buddhism is associated with peace, um, in the words of one of my teachers, uh, when you really get down to practice, then you find you've got a, a fight on your hands. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. This was a quote from uh, Lumpa or, or Venerable Ajahn Panyawado, who was the, the most senior uh, Western monk in the forest tradition and very highly respected um, by the other forest masters, by the Thai forest masters. And uh, um, you know, it's it, it's interesting in Thailand, especially, and also and also on for I think for human beings everywhere. Um, at a certain point, Dhamma practice, you kind of really have to to dig down deep. You know, there's a certain amount of of kilesa uh, that is obvious that we'd like to get rid of. Pain, or, you know, the, the pain that is a result of past karma, or, or certainly anger. We can see the anger, even though it's, you know, even though there's, there's something even attractive about anger. But but generally, you know, we we don't want to be angry people. We want to be kind, loving, balanced people. Uh, but then there's deeper levels of or more subtle defilements, which uh, are very deeply entrenched, and maybe we're not so sure we actually want to get rid of them. And then uh, uh, to go in there, you, you, know, you really have to, to really take some effort. And that's why in the forest tradition, uh, often they start to use kind of a lot of martial imagery uh, about you know, going in there, whether it's like, uh, there was one famous monk who used to be a boxer, and so he would kind of use these boxing similes in his Dhamma talks. 
<laughs> which were, you know, you really get you roused up. You get in there and you give, give greed a left hook. <laughs> you, you give anger a jab to the gut. And then, you know, um, some people can relate to that more than others. Some people... Um, Young, young Thai monks really like that, <laughs> that imagery. Um, anyways, on a more, on a, you know, back to this, this idea of, of uh, what can happen over the years. Um, it's easy to lose the enthusiasm not just of youth, but enthusiasm of when we meet something fresh, and then it's no longer fresh anymore, and we can kind of get um, pulled into just fulfilling a role. Just kind of put into uh, a role. And then life becomes kind of dictated by the role that we're in, and then the role is, is uh, other people expect, expect us to fill this role. And then uh, we become less and less free. You know, so we start off, you know, kind of um, a nobody, but we're in this war, you know. But then, and then you gotta get elevated or promoted into a role. But then, often you have less free, or less, uh, there's less spark. Uh, something is lost. It's again like we were talking about yesterday. You know, in prison, would you rather be, you know, one of the guys who's trying to escape from prison, or if the if the prison authorities wanted to elevate you to best prisoner of the year and gave you certain comforts and perks, would you want to stay in prison? You, know, you could be like you could fill this role of I am the best prisoner. <laughs> Or, or, and then you think back, you know, when I was a young prisoner, I was really motivated to escape. But never underestimate the deep-seated... deep-seated, very, very, very uh, powerful nature of desire, basic human uh, desire. Desire for uh, companionship, warmth, desire for love, uh, and uh, it needs to be recognized. In some ways, you know, we need to... uh, develop it in a wholesome way. You need to kind of shift perceptions. And as perceptions shifts, our relationship to those desires become more and more wholesome. Um, but uh, even, even those wholesome desires will keep reinforcing the sense of self. Right? Uh, even just the... Uh, like this, this thought... I wish you were here, or something like, I wish I was here. In a basic way, it's like, well, I wish I was here. 
because you know, the self wants to exist. You know, the the delusion of the self would just kind of wishes that uh, somehow we were there. The desire itself tends to reinforce the sense of I. Every time we, we wish for something, it has this self-reinforcing aspect to it, which then um, get into this, I want something, I wish for something, I miss something. And, and that keeps perpetuating itself. So even on that, that very basic level of desire for friendship, warmth, companionship, uh, goes very deep. And then um, uh, you get an idea of how, how deeply flowing this sense of, of self is. <clears throat> One uh, simile for samsara is uh, like a round fish tank, a fish bowl. And you got a couple of fish in there and they just keep going around and around and around. And you can say, well, they're trapped in there. But being trapped in a fishbowl is not all that bad. You know, there are some, you know, if we looked at at any situation, there are, are benefits and drawbacks, and then the escape. You know, even so, if you're in a fishbowl, even though you're going around and around, you see the same little, um, little fake castle and, and sea chest over and over and over again in the fish tank. There still are some benefits. For example, you know, you've got these godlike beings, human beings, who come and, and feed you every day for free. It's like heaven. You don't have to do anything. Food just comes for free. And then these big beings will clean your, clean your environment for you. So there are some perks. Uh, there's no fear. You know, if, you're, if you're a fish in a fish tank, you don't have to worry about being eaten by larger fish. So there's freedom from fear. If you're a fish in a fish tank, you don't have to make bad karma by having to eat other fish. You can rely on, on the fish food. So there's a lot of benefits of just being a fish in, in a fish bowl, swimming around and around and around. It's like finding a, a place of physical or mental comfort. And at some point, you know, you, I mean, you could swim around and around like that for eons. And especially if there's... Um, a deeply held view of self or soul. You just get like these souls that are going around perpetuating themselves over and over and over and over again. But at some point, you know, even a fish is going to look out, look through the glass and say, well, what's on the other side of the glass? And they're going to re- recognize, wait a minute, even though we've been traveling and traveling and swimming and swimming, we're in the same place that we started at. What's going on? And then the question arises, well, is it better to be a fish going around in circles in the fishbowl, or is it better to be outside uh, swimming in the ocean, swimming in a lake? 
Good question. A lot of drawbacks of being in the lake, especially around here. It's dangerous. But um, but then if you can you know, visualize, you know, escape from that whole scenario, you know, something like a completely different dimension which uh, transcends um, whether you know, your options of, of being in the fishbowl or being outside the fishbowl. You know, then we then we start to uh, then the seeds of aspiration for freedom, true liberation, enlightenment, start to uh, take root in consciousness. Otherwise, we're just going over the same old uh, uh, patch of earth over and over again, the same old ground over and over again, you know, year after year, day after day, month after month. You know, and what do we find? If you keep going around on the same old patch of earth over and over again, we keep coming back to the same old basic fears that we have, uh, that you know, we find that's uh, the thing that's holding us. Uh, um, often it's fear of the unknown, fear of what, we'll, what we might... Who knows? That's the thing about the unknown. It's At least... If we're in a fishbowl, we know, we know the parameters of the fishbowl. It's not so bad. It's actually, in many ways, pretty good. But who knows what's outside the fishbowl, and that that unknownness about it, um, you know, is can be can can feel insecure. So in many ways, you know, I really wish that I was here. It's like this deep-seated uh, desire for uh, the existence of a separate individual self, you know, that will perpetuate itself. You know, an individual self that I call you or me or I. You know, I really wish that, that I was here. And it's like, you know, it's even just that phrase, you know, I wish I was here. It's like the uh, the the wishing. You know, creates. The sense of self, the wishing creates the I, and then when there's a sense of I, that tends to create the the time-space dynamic where you get here. So I wish I wish I was here, but uh, you know, to be honest, I wish I was here. But then I hear the words of the Buddha, and. Uh, with uh, you know, I, well, I trust, and uh, he says, "No wishes, no you, no here." Okay. So, offer this for your reflection this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.